Hey everybody, welcome to the Growing with Fishes podcast. I do apologize for a little bit of delay there. We did have some technical issues, but we did manage to smooth out all of the uh, all of the uh, the ruffles in the uh, fabric there. So um, this week we have the wonderful Wilson Leonard, um, who's joining us all the way from Australia. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. We also have uh, Roger from True Aquaponics. Howdy, folks. How's everybody doing? Hey. Uh, Roger from I Love Growing Marijuana. Hey, everybody. It's good to see you. It's good to be on the show this week. We got Marty. Hey, what's going on, everybody? We got Mr. Green Jeans. Hey, everybody. Glad to be here. Josh from Dutch Blooms. Hey, guys. Stoked for the show. Hey, man. he's back. Right on time. Just like that. Thanks for joining us, uh, Dr. Leonard. Um, it, it's been a great uh, re reading your book. I know um, a couple of members of the panel have also been reading your book, and uh, Ken here at Ouroboros has also been reading your book. I work a lot with him. Um, uh, thanks a lot for joining us. Why don't you tell us a, a little bit about yourself? A little bit about myself. Well, I, I live in Australia, as you know. Um, lived there all my life, was born in Australia. I have a background in uh, freshwater ecology, so I studied ecology and aquaculture when I was for 10 years um, and sort of got a little bit tired of the science hierarchy that gets put in place. <laughs> And so decided to go back and do a PhD. And because I had a background in aquaculture and um, freshwater ecology, I was interested in using the nutrient resources that are produced as waste from aquaculture operations. And I had a bit of a read around and discovered this thing called aquaponics, which was pretty new at the time. So I put in a, a request for some research funds and I got knocked back on that but the agency said that they would give me a PhD scholarship. So I ended up going back to university for another four years and doing a PhD. And in that, I specifically studied um, nutrient dynamics in aquaponic systems so that I could pull the system apart in a parameter sense. And I chose a whole lot of different parameters within how an aquaponic system works and isolated them and did scientific tests on them in the laboratory and collected the data and then put all of that together and came up with an optimized system at the end when I had all of the better results of the individual parameters that I'd tested. And then from that, I produced a mathematical model that allowed me to um, predict fish to plant ratios based on the nutrient flows within the system. So that's what I did at university. And then I left university and I got approached by someone to build a farm. So I built a farm and and we had a commercial operation going for about four years and we had success while selling um, soft leafy green herbs into a winery region close to Melbourne where I live. And those wineries have a lot of five-star restaurants attached to them. So that, they were buying the herbs from us at a very good price. And at the same time, that allowed me to field-proof my models. And it also allowed me to hone my um, management methodologies so that I could get them optimized as well. So 
did all of that. And then since then, I've worked as a commercial consultant and I did a large project in New Zealand for three years where I specifically compared aquaponic production in the same greenhouse to standard hydroponic production. Um, <laughs> is that enough of a background? <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, I just I wanted to uh, let our, our listeners, uh, you know, kind of give you a short background. I have a bunch of questions for you, um, yeah. uh, especially because you uh, later on when we get a little bit more into it, I w- you've actually had a chance to work with some aquaponic cannabis grows, and uh, I haven't met too many other people that actually have had the pleasure of doing that aside from myself. So I, I look forward to talking to you about that a little bit more uh, a little bit later on. Um, do you want to tell us, you actually had the very first aquaponic uh, commercial facility in Australia. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Um, well, you kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier, but do you want to go into a little yeah. bit more in depth? Yeah, yeah, yeah. From what I understand, it was the first commercial facility. I guess um, that's up for debate. There might be someone else who will say no, but from my understanding, it was. Um, yeah, so I, I, I built a farm. I was, look, I was, I was a bit naive at the time. I was a scientist and uh, someone approached me who had a little bit of money and said that they wanted to get into aquaculture. And I said, I don't do straight aquaculture. I do integrated farming. And he said, yeah, that's okay. He had a property outside of Melbourne, about um, 30 miles outside of Melbourne in the foothills. So we set up there. I designed the system for him and he started building it. And then he said to me, I want you to come on board and be a business owner as well because I can't do it by myself. So I joined him and basically I grew Murray codfish, which is an iconic freshwater fish species in the southeastern corner of Australia. Um, And it's our largest freshwater fish species. And there was a burgeoning aquaculture industry in that species, so I chose it. And we, we, you know, for people, the relativity of the prices you can get if you've got a good fish available to you are interesting. In in the US, in a price per pound, you might be getting, I don't know what it is at the moment, but it might be 2 or $3 per pound as a wholesale price. For the fish that I was growing in Australia, I was getting about $20 per pound. Um, so it made the operation a lot more economically viable. So we were growing a couple of ton of Maricotti year. And then I was, I had four individual greenhouses at the end and probably around about 150 square meters or around about 1500 square feet of direct plant growing area in those. And we grew probably about 12 different herb species wanted um it wasn't as curved for me in terms of the technicalities of how the aquaponic system operated and worked it was more of a learning curve in business and how difficult business is and um i quickly learned that you're not a farmer for very long you become a delivery driver and a salesperson so um like i said it was a good learning curve for me i picked up a lot of information on how to run a business correctly and it it's been it's put me in good stead for the future because i taught in the u.s workshops a couple of times a year for about six years with jim Ricosi and and i and i did a business talk because i dealt with the business i shared with us because so um it sort of taught me that 
you know, developing a technology and building an industry is far more about the actual economic and business side of things than it is about the technology itself. You can always have smart people to develop technology, but you've got to have particular types of people to start an industry and develop, develop it so it's economically viable. So um, do you want to tell us uh, a little bit more about uh, Murray cod or any other fish that you're working with? A lot of the U.S. listeners actually aren't familiar with that species. Do you want to tell people maybe a little bit more about that and then maybe some of the other species that you work with? Yeah, so uh, look, I'm, I've been... In terms of aquaponics, in, in some ways I've been very lucky and in other ways I haven't been lucky. So, you know, when you first read about aquaponics and still nowadays most of this are tilapia, um, tilapia is a very easy fish to keep. It's quite difficult to kill, actually, if you know what you're doing. And it grows quickly. It produces good waste profiles. It, it eats a low-protein fish feed. It hasn't got high dissolved oxygen requirements. It can handle fairly broad pH ranges. So it's a good species to work with in that context because it's very forgiving. Um, you know, it can handle high suspended solids loads and these sorts of things. So the water quality requirement in an aquaponic system when you use a fish like tilapia is a lot um, more forgiving than it is with the fish species I had available to me. Tilapia is not um, a fish that you're allowed to have in Australia. It's a recognised pest species, so you can't commercially grow it. Um, so I was forced into using native fish species, and we have a well-developed freshwater aquaculture industry in Australia where we have about half a dozen freshwater native species that are cultured and sold. Um, probably the one that most people in the US would be familiar with is called barramundi or Asian sea bass. And that's because a lot of barramundi is starting to be grown in the US now. So people aim. So I've used barramundi in Australia. It's good for tropical areas where you need high water. But the fish species that I've concentrated on where I live, which is in the south of Australia, being opposite to America, when you travel south in Australia, it gets colder climate. Um, the fish that I concentrate on are Murray cod, like I said, and rainbow trout and brown trout. Rainbow trout and brown trout are ubiquitous without Australia and have been for a couple of hundred years because they were introduced by early European settlers. Um, and they're a good commercial species that brings good prices. So they're good species to use. The, the caveat on any salmonid fish is that they're quite difficult to keep in tank culture because they've got a high requirement for good quality water. So not a lot of people can grow them. Um, there's some people doing some really good work in the US at the moment. Steve Summerfelt comes to mind, is doing some really good work with salmonid species in aquaponics now in the US. But that that's only developed recently. I've been using salmonids for the last 15 years or so. And Murray cod is, um, like I said, an iconic fish species, uh, lives in uh, the Murray River system, which is our largest river system in Australia on the East Coast. And people have been farming, um, not farming, um, well caught for the last 50 years. And so in the southeastern states of Australia, it's got a very good eating reputation. It's And a lot of worldwide chefs, when they experience it say it's one of the best freshwater fish they've ever cooked and eaten so it's got a very good reputation nice firm white flesh it's a beautiful fish species it's got a mottled 
skin color to it. It doesn't have big, like a carp does. It's got more of a, a leathery skin, more like a, uh, even less scales than a tilapia, scales than a barramundi. So it's quite a leathery skin. The scales are very small and hard to pick up. Um, it's got it's got a nice greeny blue mottling on it, so it presents very well as an eating fish. Asian people love it because it's green and that's a lucky colour in Asia. And it cooks up really nicely. It's got a very nice fat content. So, you know, when it cooks, you can cook it quickly, but it retains a lot of moisture because of the fat content. And it's a high, high dining restaurant fish in Australia because not a lot of people grow it. And the wild caught fishery was shut down about 20 years ago. So it's in demand. Um, in terms of keeping, it's it's got a far higher requirement for good quality water than what a tilapia does. It operates at around 20 to 24 degrees C, I guess, you know, up to about high 70s Fahrenheit. Um, it, it's not very good at handling nitrite. It can handle a little bit of ammonia, but you've got to keep it below one. You've got to keep your nitrite below 0.5. It can handle higher nitrate levels and it has no problems with any of the other plant nutrients like potassium or calcium or anything like that. Some of the salmonid fish species have problems with potassium, so you've got to be careful with that, but the Murray cod doesn't. So all around, it's an excellent fish species. I would say the only reason that it hasn't gone to other parts of the world is because it can be difficult to reproduce. So all the fish that are produced in Australia are still produced in dams or pondages and you have to really develop um, a wild environmental condition for them to breed so uh, as opposed to barramundi where the life cycle is being fully closed and you can you can breed them and, and use hormones and you can breed them several times a year you can't do that with Murray cod at the moment so it's a great species of fish to to use it's quite territorial so you have to know how to keep it like a barramundi you have to know the particular conditions to keep it in to make sure that they don't hurt each other but you can keep it at high densities and um, it grows really well it's got a fantastic conversion ratio so it'll convert it one to one um, it heats a high protein feed but you don't use as much feed because it's conversion from a fish like tilapia so tilapia might convert at 1.4 so you've got to add you know, 40% extra feed to get the same growth rate out of it or the same amount of weight put onto it as a, as a Murray cod, which will, it'll eat one-to-one. -one. So you, you use less food. So even though the food's more expensive because it's a higher protein content, it's still cheaper to grow it. That's that's really interesting. Do you guys do any uh, North American species or, or Paku is the other species I was going to ask you specifically on? Not in, not in Australia. So I do work, work all over the world and I use, I've used a lot of different fish species in particular countries, but Australia is unique in that we have very strong um, agricultural protection laws and quarantine laws. So, and that's because Australia is probably a very good violent boarding cause. I remember. So now the government and has is very tight on what's allowed to come into the country so even 
the aquarium fish industry, the, the number of species of fin port to Australia is dropping all the time because they're scared of, of fish escaping into the wild and causing environmental problems. So, um, so how does that affect you? We can't get North American species in Australia. How does it affect what? Sorry. I'm sorry, sorry I was a little bit of a lag and a sync issue there. Um, how does that affect your um, uh, I, intellect, or, how does that affect your uh, integrated pest management for things like, say, beneficial nematodes or other beneficial insects that you guys use for, for pest management? Um, it doesn't affect it because Australia has all its own native species that we use, um, just like any other country. Uh, so... And, and those native species will attack foreign invaders. So if you take aphids, for example, as a plant pathogen, then there's, there's parasitic wasps in Australia that will attack aphids. There's also, we've also got lace winds and we've got local ladybug varieties that will control aphids. So um, our IPM is probably even is is very highly developed. We've got specialized com companies in Australia which we had the first companies in the world that actually cultured insects to sell for IPM. So, so it's highly developed in as where we lose out on anything. Hello. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. I didn't know that you're involved with that with the beneficial insects. That's really cool. What which insects in particular were you breeding? Yeah, well, you know, permaculture, you've heard of permaculture. Um, we seem to have a big sleep. Um, we breed lots of different insects in Australia. There's, you know, lots of parasitic wasp species get bred in Australia. A lot of um, predatory mite species get bred in Australia. And they're not just for greenhouse production. They get used as well as industry in Australia. Steve, you're muted. Sorry about that. So you've actually put out a lot of really cool calculators for people both on the uh, backyard scale and, and, and larger scale. Um, do you want to talk about those? You've actually, I, I love a lot of your work. You've actually inspired me to do a bunch of similar type projects. Um, well, the calculators I put out more than several years ago, that they're, and they're only backyard calculators that I put out. Um, I've got my own design models for commercial systems, but they're far more sophisticated and they have a lot more inputs and the mathematics involved is a lot more detailed. Um, I really put the calculators out through frustration and because people were entering the backyard industry at the time or the hobby industry and they weren't getting access to good information and and the ways that they were being told to design things were incorrect in my opinion. So I put out calculators for people to be able to 
design their own backyard systems. I'm not saying they're the best calculators in the world or anything, and they've probably got some holes in them, but in terms of being able to work out your bow fish tank volume and fish number to plant growing area ratios, they're, they're pretty good. And they also have some, some, some uh, lessons that people do things properly. The one frustration I get with it is that people seem to download the calculator very regularly, but they don't download the explanation notes that go with it that are about 20 pages long. And a lot of that information is important to knowing how to use the calculator. So I get a lot of emails from people saying to me, your calculator doesn't work or I can't get this right. And I'm, and I'm constantly saying, why don't you just read the notes I provided? But, you know, I've learned that humans don't like reading that much. So, um, yeah, maybe I should put out a lesson on how to use the calculator on YouTube or something. Right. That's the one thing. So I ended up doing a lot of product development for Sylvia Bernstein. You probably know who that is. Um, and... Yes. Um, the 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 issue was the um I, it took me a long time pro over a year to realize that a lot of people simply do not care about learning about the um uh like educating themselves on the chemistry and the microbiology and the technical end they just want a solution they want some they want is they have a problem and they want a solution to the problem they have right now and, and, and getting past that like from like a uh philosophical or theological kind of mindset, I guess, in a weird way, it was very difficult for me in particular to kind of realize. It took me a while. Yeah, look, it's it's an interesting point. Um, aquaponics is a really interesting technology, I think, if you look at it in an overall sense. Um, it developed at the same time as the internet, pretty much. So a lot of other industries that developed before the internet, you've got this precedent of information in books written by experts where you can go back and look at it. Let's take aquaculture, for example, even recirculating aquaculture. You can go back to the 1970s, 80s and 90s and you can find quality scientific and engineering texts on how to design a recirculating aquaculture system. But that's not really available in aquaponics now because it developed the same time as the internet developed. And so everything just went onto the internet and, and the internet's not vetted the same way that science is. So, you know, if I produce information, it has to go to other scientists and they have to, they have to look at it and referee it and say, yep, it's all good. We can have it published. Whereas nowadays you can just publish anything on the internet. So, one of the issues that I have with aquaponics is that there's a lot of information out there and that's the good part of the internet. It gives people access to a lot of information, but there's actually no process in place to make sure whether that information is valid or not. And it must make it extremely difficult for people who are trying to access information to know what's good quality information and what's not. And um, that feeds in to what you were saying in terms of people do just they just want a solution and that's completely understandable and it's not restricted to hobby scale aquaponic farmers you know i've met broad acre soil based cropping farmers who are exactly the same they're like mate don't go on with your egghead stuff about soil microbiology <laughs> and what's going on they just, you know like what do i do yeah that's right 
tell me how to get my wheat to grow faster and bigger. And you're like, fair enough, that's a commercial requirement. So I understand it completely in a commercial context that makes complete sense. For hobby people, I don't know. When I do a hobby, I get right into it and I try and learn as much as possible. So I would have thought it would be a little bit different. But I guess it's like backyard gardeners. There's a lot of people that don't want to know about soil micro and soil pH and chemistry. They just want to know how to produce good tomatoes in the soil. And I guess aquaponics is the same. So... Um, I think I think it's a rele- it's a relevant point to make. I find being a trained scientist, you know, today and saying how am I going to work out what's going on with aquaponics, it would be really difficult. And I reckon it'd be more difficult than when I started because there was no information around when I started except pretty much the work of Jim Marcosi, a good platform to have all this other to what I learned. So nowadays, it's just so much more difficult to learn that. Sorry, you might hear a helicopter in the background. I'm sitting outside in the sun. So looking um, looking for your pot plants, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah. So uh, look, I no, think it's a good point uh, that you make. So, so do you want to tell us, you actually did a lot of work with, um, you know, specific nutrients and things like that. Do you want to tell us about some of your early work around that? Because uh, you very much share a similar passion that I do in that everyone's based on magical ad fish food and everything just works and it's magic. And you were one of the people along with the guys from UVI that was like, it's not just magic. We need to focus on the exact numbers and the nutrients and why this is important. And that's why I've loved following your work. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of your early work that you, you did? Yeah. So, so look, I... I formulated my PhD and what I was going to study, not based on science or technology. It was actually based on a business case. So when I looked at the aquaponics that was around at the time, and pretty much that was the UVI system, what I noticed was that in a business sense, you were building quite a large, relatively large fish component. You were spending a lot of money keeping fish and feeding them. And you're growing a certain amount of plants. And it didn't make economics a broken economic spreadsheet. You could pretty clearly see that 80 to 85% of your profit was being generated by the plants. But you were spending 50 to 60% of your capital outlay on the fish component and you are spending... 50 to 60% of your operational costs on keeping a fish. And that makes sense if you make money out of fish, but it didn't make sense to me if you made money out of plants. And so I, I looked at it and said, how can you change that economic model to reflect more of the reality of it? Which is basically, if you're going to get 80 to 85% of your profit coming out of the plants then you want to on your fish it's the initial driver for me and, and so i initially pulled the uvi approach apart in a nutrient sense and said what's going on here and you very quickly work out that the uvi system actually oversupplies nutrients to the plants you know, um, and there's particular reasons around the chemistry and the nutrient dynamics for that and i'm not saying it doesn't work because it does work and it works very well but it also wastes a lot of nutrients and, you know, I was sustainability and 
not impacting the environment. So I didn't want any waste streams and I just saw the, the UVI system threw out a whole lot of solid fish waste that had a lot of nutrient in it. And I thought, how can I use that as well? So in a technical sense, that formulated what I did. But like I said, it was driven by that economic case. And and because I was a freshwater ecologist, I was actually trained in the nutrient domes and aquatic freshwater aquatic systems. So for me, it was a pretty simple question. It was like, where do the nutrients come from? How do they enter the system? Where do they go and how do they exit the system? And and that's a that's very basic ecological and biological looking where they go. And so my edict from a PhD was to lower the fish component as much as possible, which in a normal aquaponics context meant lowering the feeding rate loss. What I found out when I did my research was that it's far more detailed and complex and just saying I want to lower the feeding rate ratio. What I looked at was where every sing from out of the 20 nutrients that the plants need. By adopting ducts as if making sure the amount of nutrients plants the eye does and what i substantially lower it in some cases to the amount being generated by uvi fish there's reasons for that that's because it it basically makes sure that you get all the nutrients plants need lower it substantially so my work was built around that and and the modeling approach that I use now or, or the design approach based on what size fish component do you need relative to the plant component is not based on a feeding rate ratio anymore. It's actually based on what's the individual nutrient requirement you use in terms of most commonly the top 12 nutrients, which are the macronutrients. And then... What fish do I grow that produces the highest percentage or proportion of those nutrients that I can feed to the plants from the fish waste? And then where am I going to get those additional nutrient from that I nutrient need to make sure the plants where the nutrient that it requires at the concentration? So in terms and that's because attractive in terms of spend less component the economics of the business should make as much money to grow and your business is really Concentrate. The issue is that if you only drip formation to people, so you tell them, oh, you can substantially lower the feeding rate ratio, then they just go out and substantially lower the feeding rate ratio without all of the other information available. And then you get this situation where there's people running around in the industry and they're saying, oh, well, you know, Wilson, Wilson applies a nitrogen um approach to and that's only part of what i do there's another large part where i make sure all the other nutrients available so then i get emailed in the us who've spent a lot of money building an aquaponic system and say you know i'm running my system at, at 15 grams 
per square meter per day feeding rate ratio, which your paper says is yet nothing's growing and, and it's all nutrient deficient. What is going on? I'm balancing the nitrogen and not putting much off. And, and when they hear it, they just go for it and they don't necessarily take into consideration all of the other information and background that goes into it and is involved in it. So really my approach was designed to actually feed into large scale industry. One of the potential industries I thought that I could tap into as a consultant was um, the existing aquaculture and hydroponics industries where I could just turn up to a hydroponic farmer and say, we can put a fish system on this and you can feed all your plants with fish nutrient or vice versa for a fish farm, or I could say you can build some glass houses outside there and, and make more money and use the nutrient resources that you've got at the moment, which you're sending off to waste. But the reality of that too is that it's a little bit too complex for everybody. <laughs> they, they, they think that if you're going to build a large and have both plants and fish, that you need to be an expert in plants and fish, and they don't really apply those principles of, differentiation and isolated responsibility and say to themselves, well, I need someone who can grow the fish and I need someone who can look after the plants and I need someone like Wilson who can just tell us how to integrate the two of them together to get the right nutrient profile. So I think the industry still has a way to go to mature into that. Oh, I'm still waiting to make an income. <laughs> well, that's, that's farming for you. Yeah, yeah. Look, and farming's a hard game. This is the other thing about the business side of things that you realise once you get into industry, you jump out of science and get into industry, you realise very quickly that it's really difficult to make money. There's there's a reason that farmers are whining and whinging all the time. It's because it's hard to make money. Um, and there's there's various reasons for that, probably being that in society, people are more than prepared to spend 30, 40, 50% of their income each week on for a house. But when it comes to the food that they eat, which I would argue is just as important as where you live, they're, they're not even prepared to spend 5 or 10%. So, that, you know, that suppressed the suppressed food prices in the Western world means it's really difficult to make money out of farming. So I understand you've worked on some cannabis projects. Do you want to touch on that? I haven't worked on them yet. I'm working on them. Um, so as you... As you probably well know, the cannabis in Canada and the United States, and of course, most of it's hydroponic, but it's aquaponic and aquaponics. So I've got a couple of projects that are in the early stage at the moment. We've one stage, one in Canada, and and they're they're looking to grow commercial medicinal cannabis crops at a commercial scale. So uh, we're not talking about a basement hydro setup or anything like that we're talking large-scale greenhouse production and being fed with nutrients or fish nutrients so that 
Um, there's a marketing advantage. Marketing advantage is exactly the same as the marketing advantage that comes along with food, and that is we're not using hydroponic chemicals, we're using no waste, and so it should be a better product. Not that I'm arguing that that's a good market, just the marketing message that gets put out there. So the people I'm working with are looking at the ones in Canada are interesting because they're, and I can't say too much because I'm in commercial confidence, but they're looking at growing specific strains of cannabis with aquaponics so that they can meet a particular market niche. And that's a smart move as far as I'm concerned when you talk about aquaponics, because even when you talk about cannabis, the cost of production of aquaponic technology is still relatively high and probably the highest of any farming practice. So so you need to integrate the technology with the marketing and business approach that means that the potential to make profit is as high as possible. And so I think that's a good, good approach. The Australian cannabis industry is, is interesting compared to that in North America because the market's nowhere near as open here and the government's quite restrictive on what you can do to the point of where people want medicinal cannabis at the moment and they can't get access to it not because it's not allowed but because there's no one that's being licensed to grow it so what australian in a business in is is actually an abyss is overseas export that'll be easier than trying to sell it in australia itself so so some of the people i'm talking to in australia are talking about growing aquaponic cannabis producing an end product and then exporting it overseas for sale yeah i've been actually talking to three people in australia as well actually on a similar similar note yeah so again it's a, it's a young it's a young industry and it's developing um i think aquaponics is really good for our cannabis production um you can get saying. insane growth in veg, man. I've never seen a plant grow faster than, than a fully dialed in plant in aquaponics in veg. I, I, I've never, again, set six, seven inches of growth per day documented that we, we've yeah. done. It's, it's incredible. I'm sure you've yeah. seen similar results. Yeah, look, look, people are, talk, people are interested in talking to me overseas and in Australia because I can say to them, look, I can actually differentiate with aquaponics systems between your vegetative and flowering growth stages with cannabis. So we can set it up so that you can feed your plants on a nutrient mixture that's required for the vegetative growth stage and then we can swap it over to another system and change it across to a flowering aquaponics, which is basically oh, content. That's what you ability to use say that you do. And 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 this is I think this is the differentiation between hydroponics and aquaponics that specifically hydroponic farmers find difficult to understand. So constantly hydroponic farmers, whether it's for cannabis or anything else, are saying to me. Yeah, but if you grow tomatoes, you need to be able to bump up the, the potassium at the time when they're flowering so you can get better flowering and you need to bump up the calcium so you don't get blossom end rot or anything like that. You can't do that with aquaponics. But what they don't understand is that it's a more biologically based system 
there's different plant uptake pathways that are in place that are based on the microbes that are present. And so it becomes more efficient and you actually get better growth rates out of it. And interestingly, the, the project I did in New Zealand was to directly compare hydroponic and aquaponic growth of several species of lettuces and herbs that were put into commercial sales. And, and what I found was that in most cases, if you use a proper aquaponic setup and, and you've got the management right, you can actually grow things far faster in aquaponics than you can in hydroponics. So I don't I'm think... actually, go ahead, I'm sorry. sorry. No, go on. No, no, go ahead, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, well, I don't, I don't think the hydroponic industry has accepted that because, and, and that's understandable because from what I understand, I'm the only person that's actually done it. So I'm the only person with scientific and statistical information that says I grew things faster in aquaponics than hydroponics. Everyone else says it, but they don't actually have the data to back it up. And I don't blame the hydroponic industry for saying, well, you, you know, we're not going to accept it if it's only one bloke in the world who's actually done it. So I think, you know, there's, there's some responsibility on the aquaponic industry and the people who are getting involved in it to start to do some of this work and actually back up their words with, with data that supports what they're saying. Um, the aquaponics industry is very good at appropriating information from other people and, and misconstruing it and then feeding it out. So so there is this often quoted idea about aquaponics that it uses 90% less water than traditional land-based farming. And it uses 90% water, less water than other things. And, and the, this simply isn't true. I wrote an article very early on just after my PhD saying that in my tests that I did in the laboratory, my aquaponic system used 90% less water than was required to manage the nutrient levels to the same concentrations in the aquaculture control. That information gets appropriated by people who are in the industry early on and gets spread around the world. And now it's a given and it's not actually true. <laughs> There's a lot of people that run aquaponic farms that use far more than 10% of the water that water a soil-based farm would use. Now, I'm not saying they're using more water than a soil-based farm, but they're using far more than 10% of what a soil-based farm would use. So you've got to be careful with information. I, I agree 100%. I'm, I'm actually currently co-authoring a study through the University of Kentucky State where they'll be growing CBD hemp and doing a direct comparison with CBD, THC, and other uh, uh, cannabinoid compounds, uh, as well as terpenes, doing it in a side-by-side -side soil versus aquaponics. What's different in a side-by-side -side thing where all the nutrients accounted for are the same, all the inputs are the same, you know, with the minimal differences possible. Um, I've done a, a couple of, of other things with them down at University of Kentucky State, but I, I couldn't agree with you more that, um, you know, the need for this actual hard data. And that was the number one thing that was so hard for me when I first started doing aquaponics. And when I got put in charge of the aquaponic cannabis research division back when I used to work for aquaponic source was what are the target numbers that I need to hit for, for macro micro and what, you know, how do I achieve those? What are the dosing rates? What will the fish tolerate? What will the plants tolerate? What What is okay? What is not, you know, and all that. It just, there was very little data aside from UVI. Um, and, and there wasn't a whole lot of data out there. You know, I, it's been quite a while. The last five years has been a lot more published data, thankfully, to try and average out a lot of this stuff. But there really wasn't, you know, five years ago. 
Yeah, look, that's and that's all true. Um, I'll be honest with you. I, I find the current scientific research that's going on around the world in aquaponics is still frustrating for me. Um, you know, I read most of the papers that come out every year and that level of detail of information that even you were talking about then is still not available. Um, you know, pe people are getting grants and building a a small aquaponic system in the basement of a university that's two or three square metres of plant growing area and there's no replication and they throw some fish in it and they throw some plants in and then they write a paper on it and that gets published. So it, there's, there's not a lot of new information coming out. There's definitely some people who are doing some good work and I guess this happens with everything, you know, it'll get sorted out in the long run and you'll get the people staying and getting the research funds available to do the work who are doing it best. Um, the, the biggest interesting thing in the scientific field with aquaponics at the moment, I think, is the vast difference between the USA or North America and Europe. So the Europeans are, uh, are concentrating on way different things than what the, the North Americans are. The North Americans are far more in, in sort of the philosophy, philosophical approach that I am. Whereas the, the Europeans is very much based on the hydroponics that they've developed and they're really pushing those sorts of approaches. So there's some issues for me with that. You know, I speak to some of the academics in Europe and they admit that they, the best that they're doing at the moment with their decoupled systems is, is adding 50% of the nutrient required for the plants from an external source, which just means they're adding hydroponic nutrients. And I'm like, does that really constitute aquaponics when you're using such a high nutrient input from an external source? And preach, preach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm no, I'm known for being a bit preachy in the industry, but um. Uh, I just I wonder about those things. But for me, it's a, it's a it's a business thing as well. People will place that aquaponic label on things now because it brings a better price. But are people actually being duped in Europe? They're paying better prices for aquaponic produce that's still pretty much being grown like hydroponics and is using a lot of external nutrients. So I wonder about those sorts of things. I have relaxed off about it a lot more because. No one was caring about my anger and it was just facilitating bad things inside me. So I've let it go a bit, but um, I do wonder about it, but no one else seems to care. So I don't know what where to go with that one. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, to me, having done consulting on both decoupled and coupled systems, I have always had more problems with decoupled and I've had a much easier time coming to a harmony or balance with all the nutrients and nutrient dosing schedules with systems that were not decoupled and found a much easier system. Now, I am a huge proponent of, of dual root zone pots and dual root zone planting for heavy nutrient feeding crops, which I have no idea what your stance is on that. Um, but, um, but, you know, I like to individually feed the plants. I've developed a whole method around that. Uh, and, and as well as splitting up the root zone, which is a whole other conversation. But, um, and that is definitely, you know, the method I go. But again, I, I found that single loop, non-decoupled have been much easier to manage from a commercial on a commercial scale. I, th I think, look, I, I'm going to agree with you because most of the systems I do are fully recirculating. But, um, and my methodology is being developed for fully recirculating systems where you need to balance those nutrients. And so I find it easier to do that. But, um, 
you can adapt it to decoupled systems and there's no issues with decoupled systems systems as far as i'm concerned the, the only difference really is that you have to take into account that the plant transpiration rate is a parameter that comes into play a lot more than it would in your normal fully recirculating system so you know to set plant growing area sizes and that sort of stuff it is based on nutrient availability to the plants but it's more so based on the water availability and how much of it you want to actually transpire away and and that's based on not producing too large a waste stream but also the environment that you're keeping the plant in so if if you're in a full dutch glass house with full environmental control plus or minus two degrees c for the whole year and and plenty of light and assisted lighting and, and a little bit of carbon dioxide and all of those sorts of things then you can design decoupled systems um, in a detailed manner that gets very close to not wasting any water or nutrient at all but if you do it in the context of where most people are doing commercial aquaponics at the moment which is smaller scale systems you know servicing a niche in terms of the business approach and they're not using high technology in terms of the protective structure for the plants, then, then you need to take into account that maybe decoupled is not the best approach in that context because the variations in the year and the conditions you get in the greenhouse are going to mean that the transpiration rate of the plants goes up and down markedly between the seasonal variations. And so you need to be able to account for that. Well, I, th I think if you're doing cold weather fish, like, um, what is it, super superior fish, I think it is, they do salmonids uh, and, and um, other cold water fish. I think if you're doing a huge temperature difference, that makes a huge amount of sense, you know, or if you need to do a different salinity or something else weird like that, that makes a lot of sense. But, it, it, you know, um, again, it, just, it can increase complication. Um, and I've found that a lot of times it can cause a lot more issues. Um, I, I really enjoyed your chapters on this. In fact, maybe that's a great segue. Do you want to tell us about your book that you just put out? And in fact, I have a copy of it right here. <laughs> yeah, the um, book's interesting. <laughs> um, I could sell a few more of them, I'll tell you. <laughs> but um, I've, I've been underwhelmed by the size of the interest in the commercial aquaponics industry, but it might be because I haven't actively advertised it and, and it is 400 pages. <laughs> and like we discussed at the start of, this this um communication not a lot of people are interested in reading that much so it's a, it's um, a very technical it's a very technical heavy book but if you're uh in the you know if you're really into the industry and you have a good understanding of it or even if you're you know halfway dangerous it's a really good read to help bring yourself up to speed on some of the more technical stuff Thanks. I appreciate that. It, it's, it's difficult to write for the industry, you know, because you've got a very broad spectrum of interests and technical background understanding in people. And I tried to write it so that it, it would sort of sit in the middle there and, and meet a lot of people's requirements. And that, that might have been a mistake looking back on it. Um, because some people have written to me and said, there's not enough technical information in here. And there's other people who've written to me and said the first chapter was good, but I can't understand it from then on. So, you know, you can never make everyone happy all of the time. And it probably would have been better to write it with a particular end goal in mind based on a specific set of people. But um, I think what it, what it showed me in writing it was that it's a vast absolutely vast discipline 
And I, I've nowhere near covered everything that should have been covered. And I've still pumped out 400 A4 pages with a small typeface and I could have written so much more. So it, it is a complex industry. There's no doubts about that. And, and being able to, you know, distill that down into a message that's available for everybody is very difficult. So I think, um, I sort of think to myself, if I had sold a few more books, it might have encouraged me to write more, but I'm, I'm not sure about that at the moment or where I'm going with it. But I'm glad that some people have it and they've found some value in it. So that's that's a good outcome for me. I know there's there's other members of the panel. Is anybody else here that's had a chance to get through most of it or all of it? I want to want to speak up because I know a couple of you guys have. Roger, anybody else? Sorry, say that again. Um, did you want to talk about? You've also had a chance to read the book. Did you want to ask him anything about it? Uh, man, I'm 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 in the third chapter. <laughs> I gotta lie, third chapter. Yeah. Don't don't rush it. <laughs> uh, I I really enjoyed it, and you you know you cover um, the UVI, and then you cover your model, and then you cover um, you know decoupled, non-decoupled, and a bunch of other great things. Um, you know, it gives you a really good overview of the whole, you know, commercial design. Do you, do you want to talk about maybe a couple of things that maybe you learned along while you're making the book or maybe things that um, uh, you think are in the book that maybe aren't out there in other literature? Um, look, I, I, I can say some broad things about what the books taught me. Um, it's... I think the number one thing that it's confirmed within me, because I, I thought this before I wrote the book, but that is that there's a lot of people out there who are kidding themselves and saying, I can take the UVI system and I'll change this and I'll change that and I'll improve it. And to be honest with you, I haven't seen anyone who's changed it, who's improved it. Um, yeah, it, it's an old system and and it's not, technically detailed and but that's that's the way it was produced and Jim had a specific task when he got the research funds to do that and it was to make an intermediate technology that everyone could get access to and use and the one thing in the industry that I don't understand and like I said the books confirmed this because it's all still happening is that why people just don't adopt the UVI system build it and get stuck into making money <laughs> a lot of people seem more interested in pulling it apart and so-called improving it and never getting to an end point where there's any improvement and not making any money rather than just building a farm based on the principles from that system and getting stuck into making some money and it's one thing that i i don't understand i definitely understand the need within people to try and push the boundaries with things but i don't understand why lay people just take an approach where they're like, I'm not going to do UVI, I'm going to improve it when they don't really improve it. Um, the, the other thing that it, it's probably taught me is that there are, there's, you know, there's a lot of different opinions out there on how to actually design an aquaponic system. And I'm just talking in the fully recirculating context at the moment, but you know, there's different ways, you know, some people say you need this fish tank volume to this plant growing volume and or this fish tank volume to this plant surface area. And, and there's all these other approaches. And 
when you actually pull them apart scientifically and look at them in terms of the nutrient delivery and, and the productive rates that come out of the system, Jim Rakosi and his team got it right 25 years ago. You know, there's, I've not seen anyone come up with a better method in terms of a generic approach to producing an aquaponics system than what they did. Sure, I've developed something that's more exacting, but you know, you need you need far more active management to do what I do, and and you need the models and the actual management techniques that I use to be able to do it successfully. In terms of something that's just available to everybody and that everyone could do, I just I I do often wonder why people don't just adopt the rec and get some. And, and again, that feeds back into what I was saying before. It must be very confusing for new people coming into it because there's all of these so-called spouting on correct. And, and in the end, someone like you said, they just want to say, and this is how you get success. So I guess, I guess if I was going to give any recommendation to anybody who's interested in entering the commercial industry, which is what I give to people all the time and they write to me, I'm like, just build this standard UVI system and get stuck into it and build it as cheaply as you can and see if you can make some money out of it because I'm forever meeting people or, or getting emails from people who have spent vast amounts of money and aren't getting anywhere and I often wonder how how those decisions get made. So um, the only improvements I've actually seen on the UVI were um uh, Ouroboros farms is 30 to 40% of their farm being media beds, which is basically just a modified UVI. Um, they have a, a mildly increased, um, or, you know, not a mildly, but they have a decently increased mineralization. Um, he also has the benefit of some really awesome local um, shrimp that help him out significantly. And the other, other one is uh, AST. There's a company called AST that does some really cool mineralization. It's a built-in fish tank with, or a fish tank with built-in mineralization uh, filtration that's, that's kind of nifty. Um, mm. but um, that's the all again. Yeah, I I, I I've seen some of those. Sorry, go on. Sorry. No, no, I, I agree with you significantly. No one's really improved upon that design aside from a couple of minor improvements. Yeah, look, definitely with UVI, like I said, it, it spurred me on to use the solids. That, that this is the biggest issue with UVI, as far as I can see. You throw away a lot of solids, but in a farming context where you want to make money, most people that build an aquaponic facility they have some land area available as well, and you can use those solids in land farming. And so you're not really wasting nutrients; you're just using it in a different way. So I, I have no issues with that. I see a lot of aquaponic designs especially in the u.s where they're like okay we're going to stick in some media beds and we're going to treat all our solids in the media beds and that's going to make everything hunky-dory and we're going to change this we're going to change that and again it's a challenge for me to understand it because there's not a lot of science behind it um and i'm not saying that science should be involved in everything but um yeah i see a lot of people doing a lot of things that the whole I get a lot of people write to me and say, tell me how to mineralize solid fish waste and add it back to my system. And as the book points out, it's pretty easy. You know, you just, you just bubble it for an amount of time to release the nutrients from it because bacteria help you do it. But the one thing I do see, everybody thinks it's a fast process. They, they think it can be done in two to five days or something. And that's not my experience with, when you do it in a in an 
oxygen environment. You know, it needs time to be able to performance correctly. I see a lot of people and I see a lot of things where people are like, okay, I've got this inline mineralization device and the water goes through it and I capture the solids and mineralized in air and they're released straight back into the water. I don't, you know, that's dangerous as far as I'm concerned. I'd rather just have it separate and control that way. But that, that's, you know, to being convinced. And the only way I know there is pumping up a bit and then adding heaps of oxygen in there via direct injected oxygen. That'll get the, the bugs going faster. But, yeah, I think... I think there's a lot of people around now. This is one of the, the problems. Again, there's a lot of people around now who want to do UVI and then they write to me and they say, how do I, you know, tell me how to do mineralization because then I can drop the UVI ratio by two thirds. And I'm like, it's not as simple as that. So so you, you need to incorporate everything in terms of what you do. And there's a lot of um, what I call finger picking in the industry. So people will pick this bit of information from here and this bit of information from there and combine it all and they often don't have very good results so, um, but the thing I like about it, which is different is that there's definitely a better entrepreneurial spirit in the US um, economic and business failure is not frowned upon in the US like it is in Australia and so that gives people um, more leverage to go out and actually try things and give it a go and see how they go and, and, and the industry is definitely at a peak in the US from a commercial point of view now. Everyone writes to me and says, can I come and see an aquaponic farm in Australia? And I say, don't bother, there's none here. <laughs> you know, go to the US, that's where everyone's actually trying to build aquaponic facilities and farms and make money out of it. So it's good to see. It's also frustrating for me because I don't live in the US, so I don't get much work over there because of the distance. But um, it's definitely good to see that the industry is developing in the US. So, uh, uh, Wilson, what you're saying is it's time to move to the U.S. I, I do have a quick question before I log off. Uh, yeah. I, hear, I hear you talk a lot about uh, nutrients and what have you. Most people uh, never talk about the minerals that plants need. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that for, let's just say, iron, potassium, magnesium? Those are the three major minerals that, that we see plants actually need that they don't get in aquaponics. So if you could just kick that in there, that would be great. Yeah, look, it's a great question and it's it's basically you've hit the nail on the head in terms of what my work's all been about for the last 17 years. It's, I I was lucky enough that I was in science and so and I'd also had some experience in or I did my PhD. So I knew the importance of plant nutrition and and the aquaponics industry seems to me looking on it on it from where I look at it, it seems to have a fascination with nitrogen and nothing else. And that's a big issue because plants do require 19 other elements or minerals and people just seem to not put much emphasis on it. So it's highly important. Like I said, you can't even think about producing a fruiting crop like a tomato, cucumbers, eggplants you know things no environment for calcium you know leafy greens are far low i would say probably 80 percent of the commercial facilities i've visited around the world that grow leafy greens all have 
calcium and potassium deficiency issues. You can feel it straight away in the leaves of the plants. They're very soft. Um, Here, here's a question. Let me ask you on this note. Uh, what about silicon? So I agree with you. So silicon is one of those interesting things in, in the science of hydroponics, you know, it's a 50, 50 proposition. There's a lot of people that say it's a must and it's needed. And there's other people that say, no, nah, it's not needed at all. So I'm, I'm, the jury's out on that one. I think it needs more research, but I think it's added in such small amounts that you can add it and, you know, what's the problem with it. So, um, yeah, I think, look, getting back to the original question, the, the, if people follow UVI principles, they generally put a buffering system in place to be able to add potassium and calcium. So they don't generally have much, many problems with it. The, the mineral that I see the most problems with is magnesium. So a lot of people just don't have enough magnesium in their systems and they get magnesium deficiency problems and it causes problems with other things as well. So um, it's, you know, a lot of people will see yellowing in plants and straight away they're like, oh, it's iron, I need to add more iron and they add more iron and the yellowing's still there <laughs> and they're like, I'll add more iron. So, and this can be taken to the extreme. When I did the work in the New Zealand, it was at an operating NFT hydroponic company that was selling lettuces and herbs. And when I got there, everything was yellow and they were pulling their hair out and saying, we, we're not selling anything. We're in big trouble. And I said, well, you know, what's your iron level? And they said, the iron's fine. You know, it's 40 milligrams per litre. And I was like, right, okay. So that's a little bit too high. <laughs> and they said, what do you mean? And I said, well, you've just been adding iron because you think that's what's making everything yellow, but you're not. You're actually locking out the phosphorus with the iron that you're putting in and it's phosphorus deficiency. So how about we just dump the tank and start again? And we'll keep the iron level at three milligrams to four milligrams per litre, which is where it should be. And all of a sudden everything went green because it got access to the phosphorus again. So there's a lot of things that people do in both hydroponics and aquaponics, which means they just don't understand the importance of nutrients. And a lot of people actually oversupply a lot of nutrients and that can cause just as many issues as undersupply. But magnesium is the big one for me. I go to a lot of systems and I look at it and then I say to them, can you get me a full nutrient analysis? And I get it and magnesium is always low. So it's my number one in terms of what you need to look out for with aquaponics. But um, you've definitely got to have a system in place where you can add in, especially the iron, the potassium and calcium. I agree with that fully. And, and this is what people don't really understand. The UVI system is built on the fact that the oversupply of fish feed is required so you can get the amount of calcium and potassium into the system to meet the plant requirement. And the outcome of that is there's an oversupply of nitrogen. And that's handled in a way by the bird knitting tanks, which do they do some, um, some active denitrification of the water just because they let the solids build up. And they're actually a management device. They can allow you to manage the nitrogen buildup by, by the cleaning frequency. Um, but... I think a lot of people look at it and, and just talk, talk about it in the context of nitrogen and say, well, it's oversupplied with nitrogen, so I can cut down the feeding rate ratio and everything will be fine. But that means you lose potassium and calcium because as you drop the amount of fish feed that you add, the, the pH fall gets less 
and that means you add less buffer. And if your way to get calcium and potassium into the system is via the buffer, then you can come up with shortfalls just because you haven't got enough um, nitrification occurring in the system. So you have to understand how to balance all of those things. It's where it gets complex, I think. But definitely, um, I see too many aquaponic systems where people don't add any calcium or nitrogen or um, potassium, and it's an issue for sure. Absolutely. Um, now, one of the things we do is we, and I'm not trying to, to run a cell here, um, but we, we, we do sell a, a packet for every size system uh, for iron, chelate, a potassium product, and a magnesium product that's all mixed together. Um, and that's, that's based on your size system with your pH, whatever it may be, uh, from 7.6 and above or below 7.6. Mm. And those three things we find are, are very important to make the plants really do well and also give you a produce that's you know good for you. But there's still other things missing um, that we can't put in there because it's, it's hard to gauge how much you're going to need per any amount of period and that, that's something we struggle with trying to figure out to help people with uh, mm. so if you've got any insight on that we'd love to hear it <laughs> so i've got a lot of insight on it but whether i can share it or not it's another thing <laughs> i um that's that's basically what you've just explained is how my particular approach to aquaponics works so i i lowered the feeding rate ratio a lot I do look at, I, I get close to nitrogen balancing and then I've got management procedures and buffering regimes that allow me to make up for the other nutrients that are required in the system. And, and I make up customised buffer mixtures for each individual aquaponic system that I design. And that goes as far as those customised buffers are based on the particular fish feed that gets put into the system because that'll dictate what nutrients the fish waste are supplying and the plants that are actually being grown in the system because that'll dictate what nutrients are required and then the buffers made up um, to meet all the requirements of the plants now this confuses people because my system still use less than five percent external nutrition so the vast majority of the nutrients in my system come from the fish wastes and it's that little bit extra that comes from their buffering regime that controls the pH, but also allows me to add in those nutrients that are required that aren't always in the fish feed. But I pull it apart and, and I do it for at least 10 different nutrients so that you can get the right mixture to the plant. So it's difficult for me to give the actual details of that because that's my intellectual property. And I save that for my um, commercial clients that I work with. But it's definitely the way that I do it. And, and that's all just nutrient dynamics balancing. You look at nutrients in, nutrients out, like I said. And the only advantage I have over that is that I've done the background science work to develop it and understand what's going on. And then I've actually built the mathematical models that allow me to work out those things. So basically my model works by me saying... What's the proportion, if I'm growing a particular plant species, what's the proportion of all the different elements that that plant species needs? So it's not based on concentrations like hydroponics is, it's based on proportionality. And proportionality in nutrients is really important because if you get the proportions between especially the macronutrients wrong, it's really difficult to grow plants efficiently and in an optimized manner. 
And the number one example I use is basil, or as you say, basil. Um, it requires a nitrogen-phosphorus ratio that sits perfectly in the nitrogen-to-phosphorus ratio that a normal fish feed for tilapia will supply. And this is why you see a lot of basil grown in aquaponics. People have a lot of success with basil. And this is the reason why you've got that perfect nitrogen-to-phosphorus ratio in there. So um, you definitely need to worry about the other nutrients. And like I said, I've taken it to the nth degree where I will supply a specific buffer formulation for each system that I design for my client. And that will be updated as well. So I have active tracking of the nutrients to see what's going on. And if I, th if I think that that buffer formulation needs to be tweaked, then I'll tweak it so that it meets the requirement of the plants in the system. And, and sometimes you have to tweak it a couple of times of the year because the plants will perform differently depending on what the outside environment is that they're being kept in. So like I said earlier, if you've got a fully environmentally controlled Dutch glass house, I can give you the buff formulation and it'll work for 12 months. But anything less than that, I say to people, you're going to have to give me feedback every couple of months on a nutrient analysis so I can tweak the buffer for you and you can keep it in balance. And that, that's the way that I do it so that it works properly. A lot of people ask me about micronutrients as well. There seems to be a fascination at the moment with micronutrients in aquaponics. Everyone's like, you know, how do I get micronutrients in there? My plants are suffering, I can tell. But that's a big ask, I reckon. There's a lot of plant physiologists out there that wouldn't be able to tell what micronutrient is missing from a plant just by looking at the plant. Um, but people don't understand that fish feed is actually full of micronutrients and you generally get most of the micronutrients that you need in aquaponics from the fish feed. So I don't worry about it that much. There is an additive that you can use if you want to, but I, I don't tell people to use it if if you're running the system correctly, there's enough micronutrients in the fish feed to meet the plant requirements. The other thing that's really important about aquaponics, which makes it very different from hydroponics, is that it's a biological system. So there's a lot of microbes involved in there that actually assist the plant. And, and a lot of these microbes will actually synthesize things and they will also give the plant a far more efficient access to particular nutrients that it needs and this is the number one reason why aquaponics can work at concentration levels far less than hydroponics. In hydroponics, you don't have that assistance from the microbiology that's in there, whereas aquaponics, the nutrient uptake and delivery is far more efficient because of that. So, you know, it's a holistic approach. All of these things are important to contributing to, to how, how efficient and optimised things are. So on that exact note, that's actually a great lead up to my, my last question here. Um, so have you worked with Korean natural farming hybridization or lactobacillus hybridization with aquaponics? Um, I've had a, the pleasure of working with a gentleman who's actually been on the show named um, George Pate uh, over at University of Kentucky State. Um, I believe the episode we called him Joe Pate. Um, and he actually did a, a study on lactobacillus fermentation uh, with in an aquaponic system and showed an increase in fish growth by 15%, along with an increase in plant growth as well. Um, is that something that is, is kind of hit the scene yet in, in Australia, or are you guys way ahead of us? Or um, I wouldn't, <laughs> the first thing is I wouldn't assume that much is going on in Australia, to tell you the truth. Australia is pretty much 
backyard hobbyists now. Even that's peaked, and that probably peaked six or seven years ago. So the people that used to make money selling backyard systems to people aren't doing that anymore, and they're making money other ways by traveling the world and, and teaching people stuff. Um, but I think... I think everything can get too complex. I think you can introduce too much to every system. Um, it's a deep question. I'm, I met a guy in Hawaii with Jim Rakosi about, we went over there probably, probably seven or eight years ago. We did, delivered some workshops over there. And I met a guy who, who, was, who had a, an aquaponic setup in his backyard and he was producing maybe four or 500 lettuce heads every week or every couple of weeks. And he was selling them onto a local market and he was pretty happy. And, and, and I looked at his plants and they looked very healthy, very healthy. Um, and we lifted some of the float boards and the water was black. <laughs> it was absolutely black. Um, and it was full of solids and, I, I sort of said to him, what's your, what are your nutrient concentrations? And he said, oh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't worry about that. I'm, I just watch the plants. And I was like, yeah, that's fair enough. And he said, come and I'll show you my biodigester. And he showed me a biodigester and he was adding molasses and he was <laughs> adding all this other stuff. And I think he was chucking in some yogurt and, and um, he was actively adding lactobacillus and he was actively adding a couple of other organisms into it. And he was brewing up this mix and he was adding that to his aquaponic system. And, and I, I said to him, how long does it take you to grow a lettuce? From when you plant it in the system, you know, at a, at a seedling size to when you harvest it out as a, a maybe a 200 gram head. Because he was growing fancy lettuce, so he wasn't growing them large. And, it, and it's Hawaii, you know, so it's a nice environment. And he said, oh, you know, eight to nine weeks. And I said, that's ridiculous. You should be doing it in half the time. And the issue was there was too much nutrient in the system. He was adding so many different things to what he thought was improving it that it wasn't actually happening. And the plants weren't, their nutrient availability was shutting down because there was too much nutrient and too much other things going on. So... I think you can get too complex about things. I think that for me, I'm an ecologist. So I look at things in terms of how they work in nature. And I would challenge anyone to go out to a natural wetland and find me some lactobacillus species in it. So for me, people adding things that actually come from the guts of mammals into the water of an aquaponic system is questionable. Um, but I can't back that up with any uh, proof or scientific things behind it. Um, but I do wonder about it. I'm like, how is that relevant to the ecology of an aquatic freshwater system? I would have thought that you would be encouraging the species of microorganisms that actively develop in a natural system and using them to grow the plants better rather than introducing things that come from the gut of a mammal. Now, well, 
So with that in mind, I'm actually trying to figure out, and that's something I've been, ever since I learned about Chris Trump and the other guys doing Korean natural farming and how they harvest wild organisms and culture them for their soil microbial stuff. I've been trying to, and been testing a couple of different methods on how we can replicate that for say aquatic food web. And to back up what you were saying about the complexity of aquatic food webs, um, we actually, uh, not we, uh, Ken, who I, I happen to teach at, at his farm in Ouroboros, um, they actually have uh, ouroborosfarms.com if you were interested in, in checking them out. Um, they actually participated in the study through, through NASA and they did, I forget, it was like 60 some farms uh, that were all aquaponic, be it university or commercial scale um, and, and everything in between. And um, they found that not a single one of the aquaponic systems actually had the same microbial biodiversity and that the stuff that was making uh, phosphorus available and potassium bioavailable and magnesium bioavailable in each of the systems was dramatically different and each web was different. And I think that that's actually a, a huge um, open section for as far as bio research uh, in aquaponics and to a lesser extent organic hydro, uh, which can apply over to soil later on. Uh, and things like mammoth pea, for example, just to, just to support that kind of thinking, you have a product in the United States called mammoth pea, which if you add that to an aquaponic system will increase your bioavailable phosphorus levels by as much as 30%, which is a huge jump considering you're just adding the same fish waste and just adding a microbe and doing nothing else to the system. Um, so I think that, that, you know, trying to research and isolate and then propagate and then shelf stabilize some of those microbes really is, you know, some of the future of, of at least the products for this industry. Yeah, look, that, that, that's all completely relevant. I agree with you. And my, you know, if I, was, if I was an academic and I was at a research institute and someone said to me, you've got a job, you can study anything within the aquaponics sphere that you want to study now, the number one thing I would be studying is the microbiology within the system. It's, it's what drives everything. There's no doubts about that. I think what you say about, you know, 60 different aquaponic systems and they all had different mixture of microbes in them makes complete sense. You know, that makes complete sense. Everything is, is local. And, and in terms of biology, that's the way that it works. Always, that's why you get speciation. You know, that's why there's different species of things all across the face of the planet because of the local environmental conditions. Oh yeah, and um, aquatic, aquatic microbes got a few billion years, oh, about a billion years head start. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly, and and the. The idea that you take microbes from soil and apply them to aquaponics also makes complete sense because all the microbes we rely on in aquaponic systems are the ones that associate with the plant and plants have evolved over 500 million years or however long, long it is to associate with soil and soil microbes. So that would be the place where you get the microbes from and makes complete sense as well. And um having a strong ecology in there that's full of all of the the microbes that you need in terms of what i experience and and have seen is really easy to do these things are ubiquitous they turn up by themselves you stick a plant in water and you don't sterilize it and the microbes will turn up because there's something there 
and you give an aquaponic system enough time, which in my experience is generally between six to twelve, it will up and balance, and you'll get the best out of it. So you see aquaponic systems, the productive rate of the plants and the fish increases over time so that you get to a peak point where it's working in balance and, and you won't get any more improvement out of it in terms of plant production, but you can definitely see the difference between when you first start a system and then 12 months, 18 months down the track, they work more efficiently because the ecology's developed. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a capitalist by nature. So the idea that you would isolate specific strains of microbes from a particular place and and then make them into a product and sell them to people to use in their aquaponic farms i understand that that makes sense from a, a capitalistic economic point of view but from a scientific point of view to me it makes no sense whatsoever because i would be saying that's fine when you've got a mixture that's got a thousand different microbes in it at the right balance I'll add it to my system. Before then, the system will do it itself. That's how ecology works. It naturally evolves and it finds its balance. And this goes back to your point where you said 60 different farms and 60 different mixtures. It'll be different for everyone. So how you can make a particular product and add it to systems across the world and get the same outcome and think that that's what's going to happen is, is not good thinking to me. But I understand it from a business point of view. You want to make a product and sell it. That's the way the world works. I would encourage people to work on the local ecological approach, which is to say it'll develop itself. It'll pick up the microbes that are available in the local area. They've adapted to the local climate and conditions. They're the ones that you want because they'll be the more robust or the most robust things that you can get in the system and they'll work most efficiently for you. In terms of adding other things that someone's isolated across the other side of the world, I'm, I'm not sure about that. There's one other point that you need to make about science, and there's, there's, there's a big difference between correlation and effect. So you can take a product and you can stick it in an aquaponic system and you can do a side-by-side -side comparison and you can say, I put the product in this system and the plants grew faster. That's fair enough. That's a correlation. So what you're saying is you put that product in there and the plants grew faster, but it's not direct evidence of effect. It's not directly saying it's the product that made the plant grow faster. It could be a whole lot of other things. And we have discussed and agreed that aquaponic systems are complex systems. So causality, that is, I add this particular product and it causes that change is completely different to correlation and being able to prove causality is very difficult when you're talking about ecological systems and systems that are so diverse and complex like an aquaponic system and it's causality and not correlation that the multi-billion dollar world pharmaceutical market works on so the same things happening with cannabis production there's a lot of correlation there's not a lot of causality that's being proven. And this is what drives things. This is what gives you an actual factual outcome. And that is proving causality. And like I said, it's very difficult to do in complex systems. So I like 
people doing science and I like people saying I added this particular product and I got a better outcome. I think that's fantastic and I have no problems with it. And from an economic and a capitalist point of view, it makes sense. Add it in and if it works and you get a better outcome, then use it. No problems. Whether it's evidence that what you're actually adding is making the difference or not is a question that needs to be answered. And like I said, there's a big difference between correlation and causality. So you need to be careful in those areas. Yep, absolutely. That's that's part of the reason why I've gotten involved with the University of Kentucky State so much because there is so much bullshit in in the weed world, and it's nice to you know we got to start moving this into academia and actually putting out proper papers on it rather than just you know articles at High Times or you know on a website. Yeah, as great yeah. as those are. Yeah. So it would it would be look it would be really good for me. The only way I would. <laughs> This is going to sound odd, but the only way I would move to America is if I could get an academic position and do research in aquaponics that was interesting. And aquaponics positions are coming up in the US. It's getting more encouraging. Universities are putting more resources into doing studies on aquaponics. So there's still a possibility that I could get there for a few years if if the right position comes up with the right group of people. So um, keep an eye out. If you see any talk, academic positions come up, let me know. <laughs> talk to Charlie Schultz. He knows everybody. So, yeah. Sure well, Charlie's, Charlie's a good friend. I know Charlie oh, well, yeah. and I've done a, done a few things with Charlie. And um, yeah, look, he's, he's, he's a good one in the industry, Charlie. He's done some great work. So, you know, all of those guys from the UVI team are doing great work. I worked with Jason as well for a while. And um, Jason's moved into the more of the freshwater ecology sector now. But, you know, he's a smart fella. They're, they're all smart people and did some great work. So you've got a lot of time for all of them. So, so are you teaching any classes right now? Do you want to tell the listeners uh, they can uh, learn from you directly? I, I know you, last time I checked, you were teaching classes. Maybe you aren't anymore, but. No, look, so a couple of factors came into it. Um, Jim and I were taught classes for, for a company called Aquatic Ecosystems for a long time. And then Aquatic Ecosystems was bought out by a large, larger multinational company. And um, I don't know how much I should say because this is an open thing and lots of people will hear it. But basically, that company's changed a lot now. And um, they, they decided about a year ago that they weren't going to run our aquaponic courses anymore. So we were doing two workshops a year and we were getting a very good hit rate, you know, you know, usually 30 to 40 people turning up each time. They were really good classes, four days. I really enjoyed it. It got me to America twice a year to do some networking and meet with friends and stuff. So that's gone by the wayside. Um, and we were, we were looking at trying to find another outlet to do some teaching for Jim and I for a while, but Jim's retired now and he's living in Thailand and enjoying it. And so it's a large flight for him to get to the US and, and teaching's not, not really of interest to him anymore. So we're not doing it. And, and the other thing that happened was I got ill. So I've been ill for a while, actually, for 18 months or so. And so international travel sort of been off the cards for me for a while. I'm getting better now, so hopefully it'll happen again. But um, I would definitely like to teach again. 
Um, it's just I need to do it with people who are honest and truthful about the experience of what doing a workshop is, you know, because a lot of people would turn up to our workshops and they'd be with us for four days and they thought that they were going to work, walk out of the walk, workshop knowing everything that we knew and that's just not possible. And so a workshop's really more of a motivational driver or catalyst for people and 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 I always looked at workshops more of being I'm going to introduce you to the vast complexity of what you're saying that you want to do which for us it was entering commercial industry and and let you understand that you're biting off a lot and you need to get all your ducks lined up properly and and understand that principally you're going to need some assistance from other people and that's not always in a in a technical aquaponics context, it's it's in a business context as well. There's so many people that came to our workshops that had no background in business, and I only gave an hour lecture on it, and it would it pretty much scared the pants off most of them because I was honest about it and said it's really difficult, and you've got to take this into account, you've got to take that into account, and all of these things are important, and if you don't take them into account, you won't have the success that you're expecting. So definitely interested in more teaching for me the better outlet would be a university style situation where i'm an academic and i'm actually teaching other scientists or science students about aquaponics and what it all means and the complexities of it but i really enjoy teaching um people as well especially people that want to get into the industry they're always very passionate and very driven and you know um americans are nice people so and they love australians so i seem to get on well with them all but um yeah i would i would like to do some more of it but it's not happening at the moment unfortunately but we'll we'll see what ha can happen in that space is there anything um that you think uh you've kind of talked about a bunch of things but um is there anything in particular things that you think maybe aren't talked about enough in the industry or maybe overlooked a lot, or maybe need to be talked about or covered more? I know you've kind of talked about a couple of them. Yeah, I look, the number one thing for me is that an industry is developing and that takes time. And if, if you look at the history of most industries, they follow the same sort of curve, development curve. So you get a whole lot of people jump on board early that want to make money and don't really know a lot about what they're doing. And then you get a bit of a shakedown after a few years and a lot of those people disappear and you get the better people staying in the industry and then an industry develops that way. The one thing that I invariably see in the industry when people approach me, especially to do consulting, is that no one seems to have any interest in doing any economic modelling before they jump in and spend a lot of money. And, I, and I'm a scientist, but I find this odd. I, I, I encourage the people that I work with. And, and to be honest with you, the, the one stipulation I have with working with commercial clients is they've got to show me some sort of um, demonstrable um, evidence that they've done some economic modelling within the business sector that they say they're going to enter for me to be convinced to work with them because... I'm not going to let people spend a lot of money and take a lot of risks without actually having an understanding of the economic reality that they're entering. 
And I think one thing that the industry could do is apply a little bit more of that. Um, I understand that technical consultants are uh, supplying a technical service and they shouldn't necessarily get involved in the economic side of things because they're specialists that do that as well. But I think it's incumbent upon consultants to say to people entering the aquaponics industry, have you done any economic analysis? Are you aware of the realities of what you're entering in a business and financial sense? Because a lot of the people that are entering it at the moment are doing so at a small scale, but in relative to their own lives, they're spending a lot of money. And there's a responsibility for a consultant to say, right, someone's spending a lot of money. I've got to do my best to ensure that they're going to realise some sort of potential income out of that money that they're spending. And so it's incumbent on me to make sure that I make them cognitive of everything that they should be when they're entering an industry such as this. And it's not hard for a consultant to say, are you aware of the economic consequences that you're putting yourself in front of? And have you done any upfront analysis and research to ensure that you know what's going to happen or ha at least have some idea of what the potential of what could happen in terms of the economic impact on your life? Because um, people are taking too many risks. That's what I think. There's, there's, not a, there's not a high hit rate in terms of economic success in aquaponics. And there's a lot of people that have spent a lot of money and there's a lot of people that have actually entered the industry that have very good, solid economic business backgrounds and they still haven't been able to make money out of it. So I just implore people to, to put some of those principles in place when they're looking at entering the industry and saying to themselves, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to model it economically. I'm going to see where it's at. I'm going to make sure the market that I have available is a good market and I can make the sales prices I want to make and, and all of those sorts of things before they actually jump in. Because I think a lot of people get a little bit blinded by the romance of aquaponics. You know, it, it's an interesting thing. And it captures people and they get a lot of passion about it. But, you know, romance, outside of writing a good romance novel, it's not a good way to make money. <laughs> so you've got, to, you've got to be practical about it rather than romantic. It's fine to be romantic, then let someone else be practical about it for you. But, but make sure that you study things in those contexts. That's my number one for the industry. The industry won't get anywhere if, if, if we keep having a high... Um, rate of failure economically within it and it'll get a bad name and people won't do it and um, farms won't get built so I think it, it's important for those sorts of things to happen. Doing consulting I don't know if you've had the same um, experience but I've run into a number of people that are super addicted to what I, I like to call in the baby bottles the, the pre-formulated stuff you get at the hydro store and they're buying so much money in water and packaging rather than just mixing their own powdered nutrients, which makes sense. I don't know if you run into that at all with any of your aquaponic clients, but especially ones I've come into that had issues. Uh, that's been, I, I can't, uh, half the ones I've probably uh, helped out have, have had that issue. Yeah, look, this happens in hydroponics as well. I used to work in a hydroponics store and, you know, there's a million different products in there and we, we would have clients come in next week and they'd just buy the next product and I'd be like, what are you doing? And they're like, well, we've got everything in there. And I'm like, maybe that's the problem. <laughs> you don't need everything. So I agree with you on that. I, I, in terms of consulting, the most difficult 
thing for me and and this is going to sound like a bit of a whinge but it's it's getting people to have some respect for the value that you offer them as a consultant i think that's the biggest issue i've met clients no jokes i've met i i get to talk to some of the bigger people who are doing bigger projects in the us and I've met people who sit in front of me and say, we're going to spend five million US dollars on this thing. And I'm like, excellent. And they say, and we don't want to pay you more than 10,000 bucks for what your input is. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. Like, how, how can you expect that you want to employ a technical expert and provide them such a low percentage of, of what you're prepared to spend? Like, so there's, there's a thing in the industry where people just aren't prepared to spend on experts. And the other side of the coin on that is I completely understand it because there's a lot of stories out there of people spending money on experts and getting nothing or getting bad information or whatever. So I can understand it from that point of view. And, and I understand it from smaller operators' point of view. They're, they're pinched economically and they can only spend so much money on so many things. But in the end, you just meet people who are prepared to spend a lot of money on equipment and land and resources but not on information to help them do things and that they end up failing and most of the time they end up failing because they haven't had the right information so i think um that's the number one thing i see in the industry the other thing from a technical point of view is i see too many people who just cherry pick information from everywhere and try and put it all together and get a discernible and 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 productive outcome and it just doesn't happen that way you've 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 got to choose one person who's who's giving you the information and stick with them and 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 keep with them throughout the whole process and and that that, that just doesn't apply to me it applies to anyone that you employ as a consultant within the field because because those people that that they develop a certain approach to things because they've had success with it in the past. And so your better chance of success is to stick with what they're saying and be consistent with it all the way through rather than cherry picking. And, and you know, I've had clients in the US who I come to them and I'm, I'm the sixth or seventh consultant <laughs> and they're like, Oh, we need your input because it's not working. And I look at it and they got this and they got that. And it's, it's, they've just got way too much stuff going on. And I'm pretty much upfront, honest with people. A lot of people say brutally honest, but I'm, I'm just like bulldoze it all and start again because adding to it and just continuing to add to it is not going to get you anywhere. So, so they're the things that I would say. I'm, I'm not a, I think I said before, I'm not someone who's a product mule. I don't, you know, I, the hydroponics industry is a good example of, you know, there are thousands and thousands of different products available. And in the end, when you look at them and you break them down, like you said, you can make them yourself for about a one hundredth of the price and they all pretty much do the same thing. So I'm not, I'm not into products in that sense. I'm into people doing things following a conserved approach which they get from one person and they stick with and from understanding that it takes time to build success whether it's financially or whether it's technically that, that's really awesome 
So I don't, I don't want to take up too much more of your day. I know it's coming into the afternoon there. I'm sure you're looking to get lunch. Um, do you uh, have any any last things you want to mention closing up? And then um, do you want to tell people about your book and how to how to find out more about you? Um, well, you know, just put my name in Google if you want to find out about me. Don't believe everything you read. <laughs> um, um, my website is www.aquaponic.com.au. So it's an Australian website. Um, I think it's pretty well known within the industry anyway. Um, and no, no, I'm, I'm, this is my biggest issue with business. I'm, I'm not good at self-promotion. So um, definitely I would, I, would, I would tell people to, to dig in the industry make sure that you're getting good information and go to the good people and to be honest with you you can count them on one hand in the world as far as i'm concerned so um just follow those things my book's still available as an electronic book now as a as a pdf it is not printable i, I just had a run-in with someone who bought it because it was a pdf and then got upset with me because they couldn't print it and i said what's the point of me releasing an electronic book that's printable? You'll just print a thousand copies and sell them yourself. <laughs> and that didn't go down well because this person was principled and they were like, I won't do that. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Anyway, but um, yeah, it's only available as an electronic version now, um, which I don't think bothers too many people. Um, you can you can pick up the information on where it's available just on my main website. And um, yeah, that's about it, I think. So, so, so my, so my, my physical copy is rare. Then is what I'm hearing. Your physical copy is rare. I printed two hundred <laughs> of them, and 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 Ooh. I sold one hundred and ninety-five. So you're one in one hundred and ninety-five. Yeah. All right. So and but um, we mentioned Charlie Schultz before. Charlie's got the number one one because I signed his. <laughs> so oh, he's gosh. he's got the only he's got the only book in the world that I've signed. So well, I'll have um, to figure out a way to meet you and see if I can't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, look, if if you're prepared to fly across to Australia and meet me, then I'm prepared to sign it for you. <laughs> Maybe we can fly you here instead. Maybe we can figure something out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's doable. That's doable as well. Now, I'll, I'll look. People requested that I sign them when I was delivering them and or shipping them, and I said, no, I'm not doing that because too many people are asking and. <laughs> I don't understand it. So, and my signature's never the same every time I do it anyway. So, um, but um, yeah, you, you've you've got one of the one ninety five. I'm, I'm not going to print any more. So, yeah, cherish it. <laughs> Sweet. Well, yeah. those are the rest of you guys that have one out there. You're lucky. Make sure you uh, yeah. now you guys know how lucky you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for joining us. It was a, a huge pleasure having you on. I, I uh, look forward to, to talking to you again in the future. And I love uh, that, that you took the time to and share your knowledge, especially being all the way in um, Australia. So thank you so much. Yeah, look, thanks thanks for having me. It's been a good experience after we got over the <laughs> technical hurdles up front. But oh, yeah. I've, I've, in, I've enjoyed it. Um, you know, you can, you can understand I like talking. I, I live by myself, so, you know when I get to talk to people, I usually go <laughs> overboard, but, um, yeah, look, I've, um, I'm, I'm grateful that you've, 
you asked me to be involved and and thanks for doing that i really appreciate it well you're welcome back anytime you'd like to join us and uh, uh thanks again for for sharing your knowledge and um all, if you guys are more interested in i have his links uh, for both his bookstore and his website in the description uh if you're listening to this in audio format those will be in the description of the audio format as well okay thanks again thank you appreciate it great show no you. worries bye-bye cheers well, Roger, looks like you're the only one left. Uh, um, <laughs> why don't you uh, tell us what you've been up to? <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, we're hard at the grindstone, and they're sitting here at the computer keyboard uh, helping people uh, learn to grow successfully over at ilovegrowingmarijuana.com. And uh, we've been having a real good time of it, lots of new members every day. I don't know. I think we – I look a couple days, and I think we got like 149 new members every once in a while every day you know or so and and uh it's pretty neat you know I, I just you can't even imagine you know have somewhere we had all these people yesterday and 149 more people joined today you know just, and i'm actually been looking for a new moderator just to just to help take the uh you know the 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 workload off of some of the other guys and and uh but it's hard to do it's one of the things that are kind of hard to do because you want to get somebody that works real well it's not so much fun and some it works real well but it's finding somebody that's versed in a, maybe a different idea or methodology of growing than me or all like most of the guy most of the guys on the on our team are soil growers or soilless growers you know there's not I, I think we might have one hydroponic. Well, I'd be too hydroponic, you know, if you want to go that way. But I grow all different kind of methods, so that doesn't matter. But, I'm, I, you know, that's basically what I've been up to, kind of doing that. And, uh, you know, keep trying to keep up with the uh, heat and the rain over here. And in between heat and rain, I try to get some work done. Tim, I just missed, like, a super dope technical question that Charlie asked me to ask him that I just didn't see. Uh-oh. Yeah, so everybody else took off, huh? Yeah. I didn't even notice oh. that. I was just kicking back listening, you know. I figured, you know, it was, it was going well that way. Yeah, I just uh, just missed uh, Charlie's question there. Oh, well. I'll, hopefully, we'll be able to get Mr. Dr. Leonard back on again soon. I would also like to announce preliminarily, it looks like, um, well, actually, you know what? I'll wait till next week to announce it. We will be having a really cool class at aquaponic or um, a really cool aquaponic class at Ouroboros Farms on November third and fourth with a very special teacher from very, uh, that normally doesn't teach classes anymore. Um, that is a uh, long-term teacher from aquaponics. Um, Again, we're settling and finally confirming everything. Looks like we have a confirmed date, but I want to finally confirm this before I make an announcement, but save the date, November 3rd and 4th. If you want to come learn from someone that normally doesn't, you know, you wouldn't have the opportunity to, that has a hell of a lot of years of experience in aquaponics, definitely save the date in Ouroboros. Um, also big shout out uh, to the guys over at the Aquaponics Association. Um, they have their uh, conference coming up. I believe it's in the end of September. Be sure to check them out. Uh, I have the link to their stuff in the description as well. So be sure to uh, be sure to check them out. I don't won't be able to make it this year. Unfortunately, we're just we have too much stuff going on with my licensing situation with the cannabis companies. But we will be there uh, next year 
Um, just this year, too much going on. I, I, I can't swing it. So I do apologize. Um, what else? Uh, yeah. Anything else going on with you, Roger? Not a whole lot. Like uh, Dr. Leonard just said, I live alone. So, you know, like when you usually when you get me going, I'm ready to talk. It's just uh, have to, you know, watch what I say or my, you know, I have to we have to limit our categories or what we're talking about here because it's a show. But uh, so, no, I'm, I'm that's about it for me. It's same old, same old, you know, work on the Internet and help people out and try to keep my own farm, getting a little bit of food you know, growing, uh, trying to get some uh, winter crop in, you know, something in before the winter. I'm really looking forward to, I didn't grow earlier in the year, so I'm really looking forward to some tomatoes, but, you know, they take a while to get going and get everything going, and we're going to, hopefully I'll have some tomato. I'll have some other things too, but hopefully I'll have some nice tomatoes to show you, you know, somewhere in November, maybe, you know, October, November. Cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's been uh, trying to plan out the rest of the classes and events for the rest of the year for, for the cannabis and veggie half, working on some veggie stuff in Canada and the United States um, that I can't really get into details on yet. We haven't done any public announcements on the veggie stuff yet. Um, probably the most I could probably mention at the moment without getting myself into trouble. What else have been doing? Focused on just a lot of paperwork writing, a lot of SOPs, a lot of just silly, stupid shit like that that you guys don't care about. Um, I'm working on, I'm trying desperately really hard to get my book done this year. Um, although uh, it doesn't sound like uh, I'll sell that many copies, but I think it'll be nice to get that out there as a reference guide for everyone. Um, uh, ju- and that's, it's, I've been kind of spending a lot more time in these last couple of weeks uh, working on that, trying to setting that as a goal to get that out hopefully before Christmas is kind of the goal um, that's about it uh, the first pumpkin we had on that first vine we ended up having an issue with the vine the weight from the vine when it came off the bed split the vine as it was growing and we ended up getting powdery mildew in the vine so we did lose that first pumpkin but we do have a backup pumpkin and I will have fresh pictures of for those of you that have been following yeah. the pumpkin um, that's about it at the moment uh, been, I actually just had a meeting with people in, in Australia about growing aquaponic cannabis with some people that are uh, very close to getting licensed down there. So that's been kind of cool. Um, also another group in Asia uh, that's been kind of neat to talk to um, without getting into details. Uh, anything else? That's about it right now. Yeah, I guess you know, speaking of licensing, I have been following up. I, I didn't get my paperwork yet, but I am awaiting uh, paperwork for my aquaculture license, my own aquaculture license. And uh, I did get, uh, have some, because they don't deal with this as much, you know, over here. Um, I had to, you know, I when I asked some questions of the Department of Agriculture, they had to actually go and look it up and figure it out. And I found out that um, the, I, I would be able to raise fish to sell to fish stores or, or to sell koi as you know, like to individuals with no, absolutely, basically no problem. Uh, probably will steer away from trying to uh, do fish as a food source unless people are willing to clean their own fish because I can sell it live. 
I can sell it dead, and but I don't really want to plan on processing fish. I never thought of it that way until I started talking with him. And I'm not looking to process fish for sale or for eating. Uh, so if I, I I will be I could sell them though live as long as they're live and you take them home and butcher them yourself. Oh, uh, that'd be fine. But as far as processing them, that's gonna get me into like four other government agencies to come out here and bug me. And so I decided. We're not going to be growing fish and processing them for harvesting. You know, you never know. There might be people that are out there that won't mind coming and getting fish that, you know, they know where it comes from, maybe, you know, and they or might. You can, do, you can always do like they do at Ken. So Ken is similar like spot. We All we're allowed to do is kill them. Like we can kill them without using a knife uh, and we can kill them, you know, whatever other ways, anything, as long as they're not using a knife, basically, um, then you're good. Yeah, I yeah, I'm not gonna cut, you know, with these guys when they tell you something, I'm kinda not gonna cut corners with them. They uh as you well know, you know, you don't when you're de dealing with something like that, you you know, you have to work with your government agencies. Uh and I and these guys have been great to help me figure out what I could and couldn't do. And they you know, in fact I love the fact that I got a guy that says, I'm not really sure about that. Let me check and he called me back. You know, I didn't have to even worry about a couple of days later. I got a call going, hey, man, that looks like one of the government one of the state numbers. And and uh, and sure enough. And he said, yeah. And he looked it up and found out. He said, you'll be just fine with uh, you know, just getting an aquaculture license. Honestly, I don't even know that I'd have to do that, really. But I think it's always great when you can get some kind of accreditation and it and it help just helps your business model, I think. Um, if you know if your customers can look at that then they feel like you know well for one thing you're held to a standard i'm not sure how much they're ever going to ever look at anything but which is kind of the funny part you know i, I did find out what's neat though too and talk about this uh down down the road we got a, a, a fishery with 50 ponds i think he told me there's 21 acre ponds and 30 half acre ponds and I'm blown away, and they and all they do is uh, uh, refurbish the the um, population in the lake. They that's all they do. You know, um, they don't sell them or anything like that. And I got talking to them, and it's funny because we, you know, I didn't want to interrupt earlier, but and Dr. Leonard was talking about that with the aquaculture and the and the uh, and the fisheries and such or hatcheries, whatever uh, that you know. Uh, why don't you put some greenhouses up? So I actually already talked to them about that, but now you're getting into one agency in the state that would have to deal with another agency in the state. The department of agriculture would have to deal with the department of natural resources. And that's two different departments. Um, it's, I'm not even, you know, it's like a, almost like a separate entity. It's not even like a division of any, you know, which is still funny. They're, they're all funded by the state. So I feel like there could be a link. It's just finding that one person in the, in the, in the out there that, that could make it happen. Um, they didn't, and the good thing is they, they didn't necessarily, they weren't negative about it. The people I were talking to, especially like I got to talk to the guy that runs the fishery, you know, and that was pretty neat, you know, to get him. And he was willing to spend time and actually invited me to come out. And uh, he said, there's not a lot to see right now. But, you know, in the spring they have, they usually have tours in the spring. And even to the point where uh, there's might, there might be a possibility that 
I can get a two month job for two months. They actually have a lot of work and, you know, during the spring before the summer and they hire on people. So I'm only four or five miles from that place. So there's a good chance. And I'm really looking forward to that just to have something different to do. Um, if I can get, I, I may sign up for a part-time, you know, job out there at the fishery and I'm sure I'll learn a good bit, which wouldn't hurt me at all, you know, hanging out out there and, and seeing what they're doing, but I'm going to try to talk them into, I'm going to really try to, I, I don't know if I can, it's going to be a long road. I know if I do pull it off, but I'm good. They got a ton of acreage out there besides those ponds, besides those ponds. And there's no reason they couldn't be growing food, you know, to give to the food bank, you know, because basically that's all they do. They probably would never get from what my conversations already were. They were, they're never going to, you know, like go out there and, and try to make any kind of money off of it, you know, if they do grow food. So I'm not sure there'll probably be grants involved and stuff like that. Cause a lot of state agencies can get grants that you and I can't get, you know, it's real, you know, unless, well, you know, you've got a, already got, you're part of a corporation, a big, you know, growing corporation, but you know, in general, it's hard for the little guy to get one of those grants they offer, you know, but if I'm working with somebody, Department of Natural Resources and Department of Agriculture, they can get grants. And that might be a way that if I, all I want to do is be the instru instrumental in helping getting this together where they realize that they could put up, you know, greenhouses out there and grow a ton of food for people, you know, so that's about, yeah. So actually I've been up to a little bit more than just doing the internet stuff. Yeah, that's cool. So that's about it for me. Sure, I'm, I'm sure that there, there's just one or two people out there listening now, too. <laughs> yeah, still have nine viewers right now. Nice. Hey, do we have any questions from chat from our viewers before we sign off and forget about them? Um, we asked most of the stuff earlier. No, oh, okay. You got that. I, I missed a couple of questions from chat that I'm just before we closed up is because I'm. I haven't fully adjusted to my new computer setup. I need to set up a second screen. That's going to make my life easier. But Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's so nice to have two screens. Yeah. So, um, I think that's about it. I think we'll wrap things up. It was really nice to have um, Dr. Leonard on the show. I don't know where everybody else disappeared to. We actually had Hogmaster, Roger, Roger, Mr. Green Jeans, uh, Marty. Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Fish Conjure guy said he's hopefully he'll be able to. He's got a new schedule change, and hopefully he'll be able to join us again. Oh, um, that'd be great! That'd be great. It's always nice to have him around. He just always got good input. And um, I know Dutch is probably looking to uh, make some announcements on the uh, Science of Regenerative Organic Cannabis Conference dates. I don't know if they've been posted publicly yet. Uh, I won't go ahead and mention the dates yet, just in case they aren't. But I know that he's uh, looking to do four separate ones in Michigan, Washington State, Oregon, and California. So definitely look out for dates on those. I can't speak highly enough about that conference. It's fucking awesome. And you will get a chance to meet me at all four locations. So if you end up doing that, uh, definitely um, come out and hang out. So. And then um, also check out Ouroboros Farms, ouroborosfarms.com. Again, link in the description if you're interested. Uh, also, I teach classes there, uh, cannabis, medicinal herbs, commercial aquaponics, 
Uh, I don't know if we've announced the next class, the commercial class we teach with Charlie Schultz and Ken Armstrong as well. If not, if it's not on the website already, it'll be up soon. And then again, we'll have a really cool class in the beginning of November with a secret guest that uh, we'll announce next week. So thanks a lot for watching. If anyone has any questions, again, shoot me an email at potentpodnext at gmail.com. If you listen to the audio format, you can check out the video format of this over at potentponics.com as well as weedtv.com or theweedtube.com for video formats. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks a lot for those last two websites that support the show. And uh, we'll catch you guys again next time. Cheers. Good night.